Here's your weekly dose of Uncommon Sense with Cass. Brought to you by College of the Ozarks. Developing citizens of Christ-like character who are well-educated, hardworking, and patriotic. On 93.3 and AM 560, KWTO. We're back with more Uncommon Sense with Cass. Today, I have probably one of my most exciting guests that I've had on the show so far. Her name is Chloe Cole. If you do not know who Chloe Cole is, you've been living under a rock. You haven't been watching Fox News. You haven't been consuming any conservative cultural commentary at all because Miss Chloe Cole has been out and about fighting for what she believes in. And she is in studio with us today. Miss Chloe Cole, welcome to Uncommon Sense with Cass. Thank you so much for having me. Chloe, kind of just get into your story. I'm just going to let the floor be yours for a minute so that you can tell what got you into this world, why you're here, and what you believe in. So I've been speaking out about my experience of going through gender transition and back. Um, I consider myself to be a detransitioner. Um, I went through the, through the entire process of transitioning while I was still a kid. I started feeling as though at 12 years old that I just wasn't meant to be a woman, that I wasn't feminine or pretty enough, that it just didn't make sense for me to have been born this way, that I was destined to be a boy, and that I would be happier if I lived life as one. And so I started to, I changed my name, I chose a new name for myself and a new identity, and I started to cut my hair shorter, I started to wear more boys' clothing, and eventually I had a coming out of sorts to some of my classmates, and then eventually to my family, and... At 13, I started going through the, the process, the motions of the medical interventions, which my parents did not want me to go under. I, need, I must clarify. They didn't want me to go down this path at the age that I was, but they were coerced into signing off on these treatments by the doctors. They were emotionally manipulated. They were told that there was no other choice, that as a family, we didn't have another option, that... They either would have a dead daughter or a living transgender son. And when you're presented with the death of your own kid, I mean, what else are you supposed to do? So you felt like it was a mistake for them to only offer you surgical and medicinal intervention for what you now feel was just part of being a confused teenager. Yes, I mean, it was ridiculous that they were expecting me to make what was essentially an adult decision at the age that I was. I was 13 when I, when I began, when my when they suppressed my puberty and started me on, on, on testosterone. And I was only 15 when they had removed my breasts. So they, as a 15-year-old girl, they permanently took away part of your womanhood. Yes. And an answer to how long had you, at that point, it was only a, you know a few years that you had been feeling sort of confused about your your gender and and such at what point then after all of this did you realize that man like you can't change your gender you can copy and paste your parts but you are you are who you are when did that realization come to you that didn't come until after i had the surgery i mean i mean up until that point i was i really truly believed that this benefited me, that I was a boy deep down. But the further that I went to my transition, the more I realized, like, 
it's not going to make me into a man. It's just taking away more and more parts of myself. I, I realized that one day I wanted to become a mother, that I wanted to have natural children of my own, and that I wanted to breastfeed, and that potentially I might not be able to do any of that. Obviously, now that I don't have breasts, I mean, I'll never be able to grow the tissue back. I'll never be able to, to feed my children the way that, that God meant me to. And it hurts that I'll never even, I'll, I'll never even have that option. And not only was that huge part of myself as an aspiring mother taken away, I mean, part, it's, a, it's a huge part of my, of my sexuality as a woman, as an aspiring wife. And, those are years that I'll never get back. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a moment leading up to that permanent life-altering experience that you doubted or questioned that decision at all, or were you 100% confident in, in it at the time? I was very confident. And and where do you think the root of that confidence was? Who, who planted the ideas in your head that this was the answer to all your problems? Yeah, I. it was from the the transgender community that I learned the idea that I could opt out of being a woman in the first place. And they had mantras within the community that are like trans, trans women are women, trans men are men and ideas like, well, it's possible for a person of one sex to have a brain more aligned with one of the opposite sex. Um, and I really held on to the idea that I had the wrong brain that I, that I that I was born in the wrong body, that I had a, a the brain of a boy when I was born as a girl, because while I wasn't necessarily feminine like the other the other girls, I was very uncomfortable with the uh, the idea of of growing up into a woman, having responsibilities like uh, like motherhood and the possibility of pregnancy and having to bleed out of my body every month for about half of my life. I wasn't looking forward to any of that. I didn't want any of it because, well, part of it was just my age. I mean, no, no, no kid, no girl who's in her early teens is looking forward to any of that. And most of the feelings that I was experiencing growing up were not too out of the ordinary, you know, but it was treated as some sort of anomaly by my doctors. They, they gave me no other option. They didn't tell me that I should just wait it out, that these feelings might be transient, that, I mean, that it was likely that I would just grow out of it and be comfortable with in my own skin. Even if the feelings weren't transient and you really did perpetually for, you know, the rest of your life feel as if you did not fit the traditional mold of femininity. Why is it that the left's answer to this is surgically altering your outward appearance whenever they're the same group of people who, who, who talk about how your outward appearance is not what defines your inner self? Right. I mean, they focus so much on it's like battling gender stereotypes that they really play into it. That's really what this is. All this comes down to stereotypes. My feelings around being inadequate as a woman all came down to stereotypes. None of these things that I felt made me less of a woman actually did because that's the birthright that I had. 
but yet they like to tell us as people on the generally conservative right side of the aisle that all of our gender stereotypes are harmful to society. Right. But th- but their answer to not feeling like a woman is then to just dress in boys clothes and act more masculine. Right. They are hypocritical within their own messaging. I mean, the idea is the reason why they rush so young with these treatments is that they say that um, it's to prevent further gender dysphoria by stopping the development of the primary and secondary sex characteristics before the end of puberty. And I mean, supposedly that is what causes the gender dysphoria, but it doesn't really take into account that narrative doesn't really take, take into account just how dangerous it is to start these treatments. The younger yeah. that you are, especially while you're still developing, especially while your brain and body and your reproductive system haven't fully developed yet. Yeah, take me through that a little bit. As a 13, 14, 15-year-old, taking hormones that were not meant to be in your body for several years, what were the side effects and the, the, what was the damage done? The first physical intervention that I went on was the puberty blockers. Um, I was on them alone for about like a month or two before I started on the testosterone. And because of the lack of sex hormones in my body, and since I was already like four or so years into puberty by that point, um, I basically went into a chemically induced menopause. And so I was experiencing like a, I was very lethargic for one. And I was also having like a hot flashes and like itching all over my body. Like this itchy, hot, tingling sensation. So they were blocking your puberty that you had already gone through. Yes. That seems safe. Yeah, and I was already, I had like a fairly early puberty as well. And that's kind of, that's, I would say that that was actually a big part of what contributed to my, my feelings of gender dysphoria because it was incredibly difficult at a young age having to grow up so soon. And like none of that was considered during the consultation process for these. It was just like, oh, well, it's what she wants. It's what she needs. Um, you know, in spite of me being a kid, they told my mom and dad, like, oh, she knows exactly what she wants. Wasn't there, you mentioned that there were times when your doctors would have meetings with your parents about this and you weren't in the room. Yeah, I believe so. And there were times when they weren't in the room during, uh, mostly like during the psychology sessions. So my parents had no idea what was going on. They were not sharing with them. Um, but after about a month of being on the, on the blockers was when they put me on the testosterone. And it felt great to finally have sex hormones in my body again, um, to finally have that energy back. And also the, uh, the physical, the psychological effects of testosterone were, I mean, it felt great. Like I was, I had a boost to my confidence and like my, my libido. And I started to develop like a competitive streak um, while interacting with the other boys my age. And I had the gender euphoria that the transgender community talks about a lot. I really saw this as a huge part of uh, a huge step in my life towards becoming this greater self, this idea that I had of my real self in my head. Was it consistent for a while? And then would you have times where it would crash and you would not feel good again? Or what was that like? Yeah, I mean, after the physical effects started to roll in about like a month or like the next few months afterward, like my voice deepening and starting to look more like a boy. I mean, it was, I felt great. Like I, I had had body image issues for a very long time 
And for once, it felt like I had control over the way that I looked. You know, I was starting to look more athletic. I was starting to develop more muscle. And, I mean, I wasn't a bad-looking kid. And as great as I felt, and as I started to, uh, like, settle into my friendships um, under the guise of a boy and start to develop more um, relationships, like a more masculine uh, dynamic, and as girls, uh, like, started to have, like, crushes on me, it all felt great. But after a while, I just, I went back to baseline, and I had more problems than I did before. Um, socially, it was kind of difficult to navigate the uh, the role of and responsibilities of being a guy. Um, nobody had really informed me about a whole lot of it. Um, I mean, my endocrinologist the one who put me on the hormones was a woman. So she's not going to be very knowledgeable about the experience of, of being a man. And most of my, most of my psychologists throughout the years were also female. And so nobody really had any clue on and what it would be like for me. And the interesting thing is, is you, even though you were pumping your body full of testosterone, your very DNA was still a woman. Right. So there's n- it's not talked about often how no matter how hard somebody tries, you can never truly be the opposite sex, right? Right. And so that experience will never be authentic. Right. So I don't think that, um, like speaking to like transgender activists, you'll often hear the phrase like successful transition. Um, but I mean, I there really think. is no such thing because you can't actually transition to the, to the, the opposite sex you can't change your sex it's an immutable characteristic that you have and no matter like what parts of your body you you take away or change or how long you've been on hormones it's not going to change the way you're born you know right. so aside from your family were the people who promised to stick by you through anything supported you through anything during your transition were they of similar sentiment during your detransition, or did they turn their backs on you? Not at all. When I mean, at the very mention of my of my of me stopping my transition and regretting it, they 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 took offense to it. They took they, offense yes, to you changing yes. your mind. People told me that just by talking about my experience, I was offending them. That I was damaging the the greater transgender community. That I took resources away from them by erroneously transitioning after being told that this is my only option. And that I should have known better. That, I mean, one person even told me, like, you were 13, not three years old. I mean, when I was 13, I knew exactly what I wanted. But I wasn't able to get it because I wasn't as privileged as you. (laughs) I mean, you're like, people told me that like I was a burden to my parents, my family. I didn't deserve to have loving parents who were concerned enough about me to allow me to go on these treatments and that I should just take the blame and shut up and live with it and not talk about it. Okay, so now they're like, well, you just need to live with something you're unhappy with. Yes. Before, and that's just the hypocrisy I'm talking about. It's the inconsistency. It's damaging. to. I mean, the people who who are kindest and most supportive of me Throughout my transition, the ones who supported me going on testosterone and getting my breasts removed the most were also the cruelest to me when I stopped. Mm. 
And <laughs> you're obviously now politically active. I, you, um, you're on Fox News a lot. You're getting involved in um, hearings over state legislation regarding transgender youth. Um, you've been doing that in the state of Missouri as well as all over the nation. I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming during your season of being um, in the in the transgender community, you were not super kindly, um, you didn't look kindly upon Republicans. You thought maybe that they were hateful, bigots, and against you. Tell me what changed your mind. Not necessarily. I mean, especially towards the beginning of my transition, I actually leaned towards a more conservative worldview. But within the, within the transgender community, I got a lot of crap for that. Like people were really upset about some of the things that I would say. Like, uh, I remember a few years ago, there was a debate around whether you should have dis, um, dysphoria in order to transition, which the obvious answer is yes. Like, what is there to treat? Yeah. If you don't have a medical, oh my if you don't goodness. have like a, like any, it's any sort so of condition. Crazy. But, uh, sometimes I would say things like, uh, like, there are a lot of people within the community who, like, don't even try to pass as the opposite sex, right? And I would talk about this a lot, and people would say, like, oh, you're being a jerk. Like, they would use all these, they would use all these, yet again, made-up terms, like, trans-medicalists, true scum, all these crazy words. They to eat be, like, their own. They turn on <laughs> themselves. Yeah, they, they really do. There is a whole lot of infighting within the community. But as because of that, like because of getting essentially shamed out of my beliefs and getting, like, further indoctrinated by this community... I started to develop a less and less conservative worldview over time. And I started to see world, the world in a more of like a black and white way of thinking. Like, uh, conservatives bad, like trans people and allies good. Um, <laughs> but are they really allies? No, if they're not, not. Like, because within the community that claims to be the most loving, accepting you do you community, they are also the most hateful. They're also the cruelest, right? People who just disagree or have been hurt by this. It's incredible. Yes. Like but, you're, they, they, they want to say that the answer to gender dysphoria is to change your outwardly presenting parts of your sexual organs and the, the, the types of hormones going through your body. Like that's the answer. Right. But then they also say, oh, but like you can be transgender without all of that too. Yeah. And I don't, like, I don't necessarily see being against. Which what my message essentially is, I don't think, no, I know that childhood transition is never appropriate. Like these treatments should be, they should not be an option for children and that there should be a greater standard of care for these patients who have gender dysphoria, whether they're an adult or a child, that it shouldn't be, that it shouldn't just be so one size fits all. If you have gender dysphoria, if you identify as the opposite sex, then the only option you have is to start transitioning, right? And I don't necessarily think that is a conservative worldview. Like I am, I am a Christian and I consider myself to be conservative, but I mean, it's common sense really. And I've worked with, I've worked with Democrats. I've worked with centrists as well as other conservatives on this issue. It's really not about politics. It's, I think ultimately it is a human issue. It's affecting entire institutions. It's affecting education, healthcare, it's tearing apart families. Yeah. It's destroying children and the integrity of their bodies. And that's something that everybody should care about, okay. regardless of whether of where they stand on the political spectrum. Chloe, I am just so grateful that you are with us today and that you um, you took the time to be on KWTO. 
and share your story. And I'm grateful to what you're doing for our state and the legislation that is under attack right now regarding our own, uh, you know, the SAFE Act that's in Missouri that is to protect children from this harmful treatment. And, um, you know, man, we just owe you a debt of gratitude for the time you took to, to testify in the hearings regarding Senate Bill 49. And um, we wish you all the best. And we hope to uh, have you back on our station sometime and um, keep an ongoing relationship with you and what your your work across the nation and support you in any way we can. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm equally grateful that you guys are just just having me here, making me feel so welcome and Absolutely. just for giving me this platform, you know, for Absolutely. giving me this chance to speak. Absolutely. We are going to wrap up this segment with Chloe Cole and um, we are going to have on Brandy Meeks with a powerful, powerful testimony on our next segment about um, her experience going undercover to a pro-choice rally in the state of California and what she learned and what she the, the intel she gathered there. Um, you really I mean, seriously, this is one of the most powerful stories um, regarding, you know, pro-life, uh, the pro-life movement that I've ever heard. So you cannot miss Brandy Meeks up next on Uncommon Sense with Cass. Here's your weekly dose of Uncommon Sense with Cass. Brought to you by College of the Ozarks. Developing citizens of Christ-like character who are well-educated, hardworking, and patriotic. On 93.3 and AM 560, KWTO. Welcome back to Uncommon Sense with Cass. I am so excited to have a lady on this morning that I had the privilege of meeting um, at a Missouri Right to Life function, actually, um, just a couple months ago. And she was telling me a story that fascinated me and I thought would be perfect, especially because we just had on um, the last couple weeks, we had Sharon Wiedelman on from the Vitae Foundation. And this is another Vitae Foundation lady with a really great story to tell. Her name is Brandy Meeks, and she is the president of the Vitae Foundation. I um, was so privileged and honored to have just attended their um, their banquet event here in Springfield, actually on the 25th. And that was such a great time hearing from Melissa Odin, who was the survivor of a saline chemical abortion. And so she had a great story to tell. And now we're bringing on Vitae's president, Brandy Meeks. Good morning. Welcome to Uncommon Sense. Hey, good morning, Cass. Thanks for having me and thanks for coming out to our events. We're so grateful to have your support and um, the support of the community as well. Um, just um, so thankful for people that truly value life with us and stand um, stand together with us to be able to protect the preborn. Absolutely. Um, Brandy, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what got you so involved in the pro-life movement. Well, you know, um, there's always a story to be told, right? There's always a story to go back to. But I have been serving um, in the pro-life movement for probably 15 years now. Um, I was a pregnancy center director um, up north of Kansas City, up in St. Joseph, Missouri, for several years. Then I came to work for Vitae Foundation as the director of marketing and research application. Then I went to work for a woman named Abby Johnson. I know many people have probably heard of her from her movie, Unplanned. She hired me as her vice president of operations during the unplanned craze that was happening because we helped get abortion workers out of the abortion industry. Worked for her for about four years, and she's become a very dear friend of mine. I'm very fortunate to get to still be able to stay in close contact and um, connection with her because I still serve on the board 
for and then there were none, which is her ministry to rescue abortion workers from the abortion industry. And now I serve as the president for Vitae Foundation. And, and like you said, Melissa um, has spoken for us for a little bit. She's also a board member, Melissa Odin, and I serve on her board as well. I was one of the founding board members for Abortion Survivors Network so that we can help uh, more abortion survivors be able to achieve healing and really raise awareness. They have a voice that no one else has in this movement. And so all of this to say, it's been building for a while. I truly believe that human rights, no matter what stage of development, deserve to be protected and the women that are carrying those children as well. Absolutely. And you and I met at a Missouri Right to Life gathering, which is a fantastic pro-life organization um, in our state. And when we, we happened to get sat next to each other and um, I enjoyed our conversation so much, you were telling me a story about a trip you took with your daughter where you yeah. learned some really interesting stuff. Can you kind of share that um, as much as you're willing to or can um, that, uh, that, that story with our listeners? Absolutely. And I'm, I am thankful. I don't think it was chance that we were sat next to each other at that Missouri Right to Life meeting. And so I think it's, again, it's another example of why we all need to get involved because the Lord will pull people together um, to be able to support each other and to be able to do the work that needs to be done in this movement. And so I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be able to share more about this. So we all know living in Missouri that we, uh, that we are considered one of the first abortion-free states post-Roe. That is something that we can be very proud of, something that we can be thankful for. But what we also have to acknowledge is that the abortion pill is still very prevalent in Missouri. It's still being mailed to um, our addresses. It's it's turning women's um, bathrooms, kitchens, homes into abortion clinics everywhere. The abortion pill is something that is uh, becoming more uh, more readily available. And there's a group that is helping promote this. And it's a group called Plan C. If you're not familiar with them, and I did share this at the event, and I'm, that's why I'm thankful I'm able to share this with um, people that maybe weren't able to attend. But Plan C is not a distributor of the abortion pill, but they are a conduit system that is, they are growing rapidly. They really picked up speed during covid The founder, a woman named Francine Coteau, she's the co-founder of Plan C. She's also the woman that's responsible for getting Plan B into over-the-counter pharmacies throughout the country. She she was, you know, very, very active in getting Plan C up and going around the country. So Plan C put together a documentary not too long ago. It was... um, it was shown at several film festivals and uh, had received some, a standing ovation is what I heard. And so I wanted to be able to see if, if we could see it. And so I happened to be going to Texas for a wedding with my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, back in March of this year. And um, I noticed that the South by South, South by Southwest Festival was going to be occurring around the same time in Austin. And so I thought, I wonder if they're going to be showing this film Plancy. And for people that aren't familiar with the South by Southwest Festival, it's a, it's a kind of a convention for creatives. Um, think about people that are in the music industry, um, film, tech space, but it's since become very much about social justice um, throughout the years. And so 
they were planning to show this film, Plan C. I did a quick little search on their website because I thought I was trying to find a schedule, and I just put an abortion in the search bar, thinking it would, it would pull up the film. Not only did it pull up the film, but it also pulled up several abortion-focused workshops that they were going to be hosting at this event. And so I thought to myself, well, we need to go see what they're saying. At Vitae Foundation, we're all about research, and this gave us an opportunity to go see, go research the opposition to see how they are trying to react post-Roe. Almost everything was focused on the abortion pill. Femtech is another um, kind of up-and-coming language that they're using when it comes to being able to reach more people online with the abortion pill. We also had um, Cecil Richards, who is the uh, former president and CEO of Planned Parenthood, uh, was going to be speaking as well. So I thought, you know what? We need to be there. And so registered for the event, was able to, um, we actually sat in on a session with Cecil Richards and a few other people that were speaking, and we made it to this Plan C filming, or not filming, I'm sorry, the film itself, the at a local theater as a part of the South by Southwest Festival. My daughter and I sat towards the back of the movie theater because I wanted to be able to take notes um, somewhat inconspicuously. The film focused on the kind of the backstory, the behind the scenes look at all the volunteers that helped fill the orders for abortion pills around the country. Now, what you need to know is that there is, there's no physician's oversight as a part of ordering the abortion pill online. That is, you know, if we, if we thought that abortion was harmful before, consider the fact of how much more harmful it will be and can be when there isn't a doctor involved in it to any degree. So the film showed um, the, the stories, you know, they're trying to really create in your mind as if these people that are filling these abortion pill orders are heroes in some way. But it also showed Francine Coteau that I mentioned earlier, the co-founder of Plan C. It showed her going in to uh, colleges, high school bathrooms, um, school, I'm sorry, school bathrooms, and placing an abortion pill sticker with a QR code on the bottom of bathroom mirrors, on the backside of toilet paper dispensers. Um, you know, can, can imagine that's probably not something a janitor would necessarily find right away, but a woman who's sitting there using the bathroom would see it. Um, and the, the point was is that so women could scan it with their phones and have access to the abortion pill readily. And in one moment, the film, she took a Bible. It was uh, like a Gideon's Bible. I'm not sure if many people are familiar with that these days, but that is a, a group of Christians that put Bibles into places uh, like hotels. You know, you, you readily would see those growing up, right? When you open up the drawer and you see the Gideon's Bible that's in there. But they had placed one on the top of one of the paper towel dispensers in that bathroom. And she opened up that Bible and she took that abortion pill stuck sticker and she stuck it right there in the copy of God's word. And I will tell you in that moment, there was a heaviness that filled my heart. And it, I have seen a lot of things um, working with former abortion workers. Um, and in this movement, I've heard a lot of things. I mean, things that would give you nightmares, but that really gave me a visceral response um, simply because it was so uh, disrespectful to the copy of God's word and so bold and brazen in the way she did it. She said, 
if they can do it, we can too. And the theater erupted and clapping and laughter. And um, again, in that moment, it uh, it just really hit me, and I I I was disgusted. So the the film, you know, had some other moments where there were there were difficult things to be able to watch. It wasn't overly graphic by any means, but it was um, it was descriptive in the way that they really want to normalize the abortion pill access to any state, despite whether or not we claim to be abortion free. I have to tell you, it is coming into, into Missouri and we have a responsibility um, to stand up for the preborn and um, women here and men that are being affected by this. So after the film was over, my daughter and I tried to slip out pretty quietly and quickly. And I will tell you that as soon as we stepped into the light after being in that dimly lit theater, it, it almost felt like we were stepping into a new world again. And, but a woman leaned in quickly as we were exiting the doors and she handed me a piece of paper and it, uh, she told me, she said, um, will you join us for an after party? We need more young people to discuss the film more. And she nodded to my 15 year old daughter. And um, I was just kind of stunned, honestly, right? Here she is trying to recruit my young kiddo. So I took the QR code um, that was on this little square piece of paper that she had given me. We ran out to the car and Brooklyn and I sat down in the car. And of course I was kind of, I was a little nervous because I, 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 I mean, I, I was approached right after the film and we're trying to get out of there and, and, and not be, um, not really be discovered for who we are since I was taking notes the whole time. And um, I told Brooklyn, I said, you know, this could either go really well or really badly. What do you want to do? And she said, mom, this is what we came here to do. Right. And so in that moment, of course, I was proud of her, but also knew I needed to pray. So I prayed for courage. I prayed for wisdom and discernment. And we decided to register ourselves online. We did so under different names, of course. And we went across town it was in a warehouse. We circled it a few times because we were trying to find a parking space and make sure that this is where we needed to be. There was security outside, so I felt safer about that. He was wanding people as they went in to make sure that they weren't carrying anything. And then also I saw a news truck flip out the back, so I knew that this had been you know, a documented event in some way. So Brooke and I slipped inside, and um, we were ch- greeted with chatty volunteers, much like a volunteer fair that you would see, um, even, uh, you know, in your community. And it was actually a beautiful space. We checked in. We went to the first table where my daughter was given a box of Plan B as their giveaway. Um, Pretty expensive giveaway, but, and alarming nonetheless. She also picked up a thing of, because I told her, let's get everything, because we can take this back and understand better about how they're marketing things and and what we can do better um, in the pro-life movement. And she picked up a container of what looked like it was a silver, like metal container with a label on the top with plan C's information on it. And it looked like mints. So she picked them up and started to put them in her bag. And the woman leaned in and said, yes, honey, please take those. Those are condoms. And Brooklyn quickly dropped the container back onto the table and uh, was kind of stunned, and I, I told the woman, I leaned in, and I grabbed them and put them in my bag, and I winked at her and told her I would just give them to her later, just as if she was embarrassed. So we went on through the tables, picked up several things. We then sat in. Uh, there was a, there was a uh, 
workshop that they were going to do, a little panel discussion. Now, keep in mind, there's not a ton of people there, maybe maybe 40. Um, I would say that's probably the most at, at any given time. So we sat down in the chairs. We sat down probably uh, three or four rows back, but there were still empty chairs um, in uh, in these rows that they had set up. And they were sharing specifically about, try- I mean, they, they kept saying, don't talk to cops. They need to tell women, don't talk to cops. If they take the abortion pill and they end up in the emergency room, basically they're going to be criminalized. Don't talk to cops about it. Um, call their, their hotline that they have available. My problem with this is that they're trying to make this issue like um, something so that they can come and, and swoop in and be the hero of this woman's story by telling her, don't talk to cops. They're trying to incite fear in her. Um, and then also there is documented evidence and we have, and they mentioned it there too, to t- and we have seen it in Planned Parenthood, international Planned Parenthood's trainings. And we have, we have some of that information on our website, if you would like to, to see that with your own eyes, but they are training providers to tell women that if they have a miscarriage or if they have an abortion complication from the abortion pill and they go to the emergency room to simply say that they're having a miscarriage because then they say that the treatment is the same. Well, Cass, I don't know about you, but if I go to the emergency room for any reason, whether it be, um, you know, any kind of medical condition, they want to know so much as if I took a Tylenol that day. They want to know what I had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I cannot imagine not accurately giving them the information that they need so that they can assess my, assess my situation um, would not be an important piece of information for them to have, right? right? So this is obviously an issue that they are that they are trying to create problems. And so they're sharing this, all of this information. And then I felt that heaviness, again, that I felt in that dimly lit theater that when Francine had leaned in to put that abortion pill sticker in the copy of God's Word. I felt it. And I looked over, and a woman sat down on the other side of my daughter. Now, keep in mind, again, there are empty seats all over this room. But someone came by and sat right next to the youngest person in the room. And she leaned in. And she gave a grandmotherly type smile. And had I seen her maybe at the grocery store or something, I probably would not have been alarmed, right? But I saw who this woman was. It was Francine Coteau. And she told my daughter, hello. And my daughter looked at me immediately. We locked eyes. And she knew who it was. Her eyes told me that she wouldn't let her guard down. We you know, we, we were going to be okay, but it still was a very heavy presence that was there. And then um, about 15 minutes later, someone came and tapped her on the shoulder and out she went to the backyard area to go do an interview of some type. And I just thought to myself, you know, that's the way evil is. Um, it slipped, slipped in and was sitting right there beside us. But when we recognize it for what it truly is, we have the power to change things. And that's what I want us to understand here today. That is my message. That's what I carry to people. I want people to know that if we can recognize evil for what it truly is, like like my daughter was able to understand who this woman was, she was equipped, empowered, and ready, then she wouldn't let her guard down. Because I have to tell you, they are coming for our children. 
They have been doing it for a while, but it has become even more evident. They are coming for our children. And so we have to make sure that we are sharing about this, especially this new group. Um, It's not Planned Parenthood, right? Planned Parenthood is absolutely still an issue. But what we need to understand is that the abortion pill is rampant and it is it is it is changing the dynamics in this country on how how women are um, able to obtain abortion. And we need to be cautious and careful to make sure that we don't let our guard down and we understand the urgency that's at hand. So that moment when she slipped out of the room, I thought to myself, that's the same way that, you know, evil has a presence in our lives, the way that it moves in and moves out. So I think that, again, we just need to be really cautious about what we're allowing to enter our lives and what we're allowing our children to be exposed to. And this moment was definitely um, one that uh, my daughter and I will not forget. Well, Brandy, I I just let you roll there because that story speaks for itself. Um, and, and it leads me, we, we only have a, a couple minutes here left, but I want you to, to finish out with telling me how you have gone about raising a teenager to be such a strong advocate for um, Christian values, for pro-life values in a climate that is specifically and intentionally targeting our high school, college age kids to that are so easily manipulated. And so they, they have big hearts at that age and they are easily convinced that to be on the left, to be, um, you know, an advocate for, for pro choice and all of that is, is the empathetic stance. And so they play mm-hmm. on those empathetic, um, vulnerable spirits within our, ki- within our kids. How are you raising your daughter to stand against that? I love that question, Cass, because you hit the nail on the head. What we have learned is that the most compassionate side wins the most perceived compassionate side wins and they are absolutely preying on our kids to make them feel like they are not compassionate if they don't um, support a woman to have an abortion or support whatever whatever rights it is that they're they're trying to flesh out right the the thing is is that we have very um, deep conversations about this we have to talk about it if we don't talk about these things in our home, if we don't talk about these things at, our, uh, at dinner and when we ha- have the opportunities, the other side will. And that is what we have to remember. We have something called Vitae Research Institute. I would encourage you to go to our website. You can find a link to it on vitaefoundation.org as well. Um, we have uh, information that's based upon research and messaging on how to communicate about these issues in your circle of influence, how to talk about exceptions. What are people saying about, you know, the rape and incest exception? What are people talking about? How do you communicate? How, what words do you use? How do you set up these conversations? Because my daughter and my, I have five kiddos, right? My daughters and my sons have all been pulled into really difficult conversations in their civics classes at school because of the work that we do and, and in other places. And they have had to defend their beliefs we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it in our churches as well. There are, there's a lot of information that's available on there for your churches to be able to, you know, whether it be faith and value statements, please go check it out because we have to have these conversations because if we do not, the other side will. They are, You know, they don't stop talking about it ever, right? So we have to fill that in. 
Absolutely. Uh, Brandy, thank you so much for being on. If you're just tuning in with us, Brandy Meeks, president of the Vitae Foundation, she has been on with us this morning. Do not fear if you missed it or just tuned in for the last part. We podcast every episode out on Spotify, Apple Music, and our website, 933kwto.com. Um, Brandy has shared a an incredible testimony where her and her daughter essentially went undercover to the belly of the beast um, and, and learned so much about how the pro-abortion movement is is messaging their um, their product, essentially, and, and about the abortion pill. And, you know, Brandy, I'm going to have to have you back on again sometime soon so that we can talk about specifically the state of Missouri and some of the um, the threats to our pro-life credentials that we have going on right now and what could arise and how we can do better in, in preventing um, access to the abortion pill within our state's borders. Brandy, thank you again so much for being on with us this morning. It's been a privilege and an honor. Thank you so much, Cass. And I'm looking forward to next time as well. And, and anybody who's out there, be courageous. Do not let the other side try to quiet you. Absolutely. And Vitae.org, is that where VitaeFoundation.org or Vitae.org? VitaeFoundation.org, and that's V-I-T-A-E Foundation.org, if that is Latin for life. Fantastic. Um, all right, guys, we have more show to come. Do not go anywhere. We'll be right back on Uncommon Sense with Cass. Okay, guys, one last segment of Uncommon Sense. We only have three minutes, so I wanted to squeeze in as much of debate talk as I possibly can in this three minutes that we have. Real quick, we had a debate watch party with a bunch of other young Republicans in the southwest Missouri area. It was fantastic, so much fun. And here's my quick takeaways. One, I thought the clear winner of the debate was Vivek Ramaswamy. 100%. Close second would be DeSantis. The obnoxious people in the bunch would have been Mike Pence and Chris Christie. They drove me crazy. Mike Pence drove me crazy because he obviously sounded like the bitter old man who just was mad that all of these young guns, although really DeSantis and Vivek are really the only young guns, but he was mad that he was being upstaged by so many other people when as the vice president, you would think he would have been the front runner, and he's not. He is so out of touch with how America is currently feeling. He's not MAGA Trumpian at all. The most Trumpian guy up there was Vivek Ramaswamy, close second DeSantis. Most polls that I'm seeing are saying that people are pretty much universally agreeing that Vivek Ramaswamy totally won that debate some of them are saying DeSantis but not quite as many they said that he did very well but they wish they could have heard just a little bit more surprisingly they put uh most of the polls are putting Nikki Haley in third now I am not a Nikki Haley fan at all in the slightest but she did handle herself well during the debate I thought and got a lot more airtime than I thought I have no idea why Doug Burgum and Asa Hutchinson were even on that stage. I would put Chris Christie in there as well. He drives me nuts. He literally just exists to trash Trump. He has no real positions on his own. How does he think he's going to be elected president? I have no idea. And he came across as so rude and condescending to Vivek Ramaswamy. He literally, all of them were up there just mad that this new guy is coming out and upstaging them. And honestly, that reminds me so much of 2016 Trump when everybody was like, oh, who is this guy and why is he the most popular? He has no experience. Well, that was exactly what Trump went for. And that's exactly what Vivek Ramaswamy is going for. He's by far the most well-spoken. I'd say the person who is the second most Trumpian 
with experience would be DeSantis. And, you know, clearly he's second in all of the polling, so that makes sense. But if it was up to me today, I'd say vote Vivek Ramaswamy for president. And this is all coming on the heels of this Trump indictment. I love that Trump put out his first tweet this week that he has since 2021, I believe, maybe. Oh, it was beautiful. I missed the tweets from Donald Trump and that mug shot. I cannot believe how brilliant that mug shot is. It's all been great. More coming next week.